Hey family, thank you to all our listeners and thank you again for joining us at Cinema Pathway Podcast today. I'm Michael Angel Malachi, your new host. Howard Brand is no longer with us because of an excellent opportunity to expand his career. Guys, we are so excited for him and his new endeavors, but most importantly, we wish him all the best and the production here thanks him for a fantastic year. You will always have a home here in Cinema Pathway Podcast. A continuation will have one of his last episodes. And I, Michael Angel Malachi, will be with you guys on Halloween and on. Welcome, film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. Our last episode, we had an amazing woman as our guest, and we are going to continue with another amazing woman today. Last episode, I talked a little bit about some of the blockbuster movies that came come out over the summer. I want to talk about Barbie in particular for a second. I think Greta Gerwig has arrived as a director. She will be and may already be right up there with some of the top women directors in the field. Sofia Coppola, Chloe Zhao. Ava DuVernay, Catherine Bigelow, among others who have rightfully taken their place as household names. But I want to talk about some other names. Ellen Curras, Rachel Morrison, Mandy Walker, Autumn Duraud Arcapal. These are some of the top women directors of photography and cinematographers in the industry right now. 40 years ago, back in 1982, the Mel Brooks produced film Fatso, directed by his then-wife Anne Bancroft, who also starred alongside Mel Brooks' mainstay Dom DeLuise, the film was a massive flop. And looking back on it, it has not aged particularly well, but there is one significant positive that came out of it. Brianna Murphy became the first woman to be credited as director of photography on a major studio film. The films have been made for almost 125 years. Warner Brothers, the first of the big five movie studios, was founded a little over 100 years ago. Yet, it wasn't that long ago, you know, 40 years ago, this generation, that a woman finally became began to take her place literally right behind the camera. Strides have been made, but like many others, many, many other things, there's a long way to go, which is a big reason I'm excited for today's guest. She's an award-winning director of photography. She is a director, filmmaker, and producer. She has won back-to-back 48-hour film projects. She's a film educator, a photographer, an activist, and just an all-around powerhouse. I am so excited to welcome Tabitha Mudra to the show. Thank you, Howie and team. I'm excited to be here. Let's get this show going on. So you and I share quite a few similarities. Uh, One in particular is that we're both transplants to Miami. I'm from New York. Although I think being a New Yorker, I was kind of destined to move to Miami one day. It's pretty much the natural circle of life. You come from a different part of the country, an area that most people assume, like myself, either correctly or maybe incorrectly, is the polar opposite of Miami. Where are you originally from and how did you find your way here? I'm from Iowa. Council Bluffs, Iowa. Our border town is Omaha, Nebraska, a little more well-known. Very creative spot, actually. Big music and art scene um, nurtured in that way. 
however, less diverse, we'll just say. I was seeking to get as far away as I possibly could, and Florida was it. The college that accepted me was in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I went to an art institute down here. Okay. Almost being in the middle of the country, you know, getting as far away as you can. You could just, just draw a big circle around everything. So you got Florida, maybe LA, if you like the cold, you know, Vancouver is a big town, but glad you made the move down here. Among your many talents, you're an accomplished photographer. Was that something you always did from a young age? Did you start to get into it? When did it start? I technically borrowed slash stole my first camera. It was sitting in the, in this dark room and nobody had touched it. It was gathering dust and I didn't have a camera and I didn't come from much. So I was like, well, maybe if I just leave a note, I'm a teenager. And I said, I'll write a note, leave it where the camera bag is, and start literally photographing and documenting what's around me. And we got to roll our own film. We got to develop and process. It was fantastic. And this is in a high school program because Iowa's amazing. And it was, that was the start. And then what led you to believe or what, what did you do when you first started doing that that actually helped you believe that, you know, I could take this somewhere. You know, I can, you know, I'm going to apply to art school. Hmm. Well, I had joined the newspaper journalism group in my high school and I put in for some assignments that were really fun to me and they got accepted. So I was like, okay, that's cool. But I would take my friends out and we do these installations, these I guess what you'd call them as editorial installs in cornfields, in abandoned homes. I was just always interested in sort of this barren space. And I sent that to a college and lo and behold, I got accepted. Not to the college I wanted. I would have liked to go to CalArts, but I didn't have the money to go to CalArts. So nonetheless, Fort Lauderdale said, come to us. Was it a bit of culture shock when you moved here? It was a shock in general. I had bought a car for $300, and I said, do you think this car will get me to Florida from Council Bluffs, Iowa? And they said, well, it's worth a shot. I packed it up. I said goodbye. And literally, as I turned into the driveway of the dormitory I was going to stay in, the car went I pushed it into a parking spot to which it never started again. I laugh cried unpacked my things, and went and got three jobs like most kids who are putting themselves through school do. Yeah. What were those jobs? Oh, I decided I needed to eat. So a restaurant job would be really smart. Um, And then I was like, I'll probably need time to do my homework. So I got a little desk job at a spa place. And then I have some other unique things. I was the Easter bunny. I would wrap presents during holidays. I would do just about anything a college kid could do. But I started assisting immediately, the second I learned about it. Were you into films and movies growing up? Oh, everyone. You know, Stand By Me, um, The NeverEnding Story, Labyrinth, every, The Wizard of Oz. I was like, if I could have been at the table when they were going through that script, like how bombastic and wild, and they went for it. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know the journey of some of these movies, but they had to have been fought for. Oh, do you remember what the first movie you ever saw was? I remember the first movie I saw over and over and over, which was Stand By Me. Coming of age, brilliant, simple story. My first film was Blazing Saddles. 
Mel Brooks. I was four, five years old. My father, my uncle took me. Uh, Blazing Saddles is one of those movies where the meme that goes around is Blazing Saddles will be shown on NBC tonight. It will be edited for content airtime eight o'clock to 8.05. If you've never seen it, it's a classic um, written by Richard Pryor. Mel Brooks, but the studio wouldn't support Richard Pryor starring in it. It made fun of all the Western movies and all the racists that existed. It's a classic, but it's dirty and raunchy. So I, I tell my students the first film I ever saw was Star Wars, which is you know pretty much, I'd say, I was telling them about 90% of our guests that uh, that was the first film. And it's also good because that ties right into the hero's journey and story arcs. And everything like that. And it's it's funny you mentioned Stand By Me because I've been listening to another podcast. talks about some movies. It's about, about movies about Vietnam and a couple of movies that came out in the late 80s or about the after effects of Vietnam in that period. Started River Phoenix. And uh, it just made me think like, again, what a shame. Like he would probably be the number one movie star today. Was it something about Stand By Me that struck you? Because it's, I can't even remember if there's a woman in the film. No, I don't think there is. I was that same age and I felt very related. And then having, you know, I just, it was a magical film of them exploring their freedoms and some of the barricades, you know, there were these bullies, there were, it was such a simple film with a great soundtrack. Oh, excellent soundtrack. And, but there are so many films that were influential, but for whatever reason, that one was on repeat. I remember at the time we, uh, my family went on vacation, rented a like little ski place, summer Vermont. And the two soundtracks that my parents and older sister played on repeat were Stand By Me and St. Almost Fire that came out around around the same time, both great soundtracks. Um, so then after doing photography, what eventually drew you to the film side, to the motion picture side? Oh, that's a little bit of a loaded story. First of all, they started, you know, digital came to me in about 2005 was my transition from film. I was a four by five, eight by 10 camera girl. I love detail. I knew what I was doing. I just had built so much confidence around it. Um, I was known as the highly reflective girl. Like I could do, I could photograph anything that was mirrored or I just loved it being in this niche. And then the camera had this little button that went to video and I was like, oh, what could I do? if I just switch that over. So I did a little research, contacted a friend who was at, I think, University of Miami, um, another friend at FIU. And I was like, how does this work? What frame do I need to be in? What what do I do? And I love doing vignettes. I know I sent you some of my work. Building out a scene, a magical scene, and making it work, seeing it as individual images, and then making it move is a process I fell in love with. It was movie magic, as we all know. Exactly. And being on set is an honor and a privilege. And I could just talk about it. It's where I want to be all the time. They're like, where's your zone? On set with a camera in my hand. Were your first experiences on set making your own films or did you work on other films? Um, I mostly and have stayed pretty true to making all my own films immediately. I just had ideas and visions. And again, back to the story because I tangent. A friend of mine tagged me in a Facebook post for the 48-hour film project, and it was about my birthday. And I said, I wonder if I could gather a half dozen friends to spend the weekend, like a lock-in, make a film. We've never done it. I had done videos, which I think is very different than film. And we did it. 
We went to this award ceremony where we are, first they showcase all of the films that made it in, in this rigorous process. Mm -hmm. And we had never done anything up until that point, any films. And then the award ceremony came and there was a little bit of yay and nay. Um, our name was called so many times that the people in the front row said, why even sit down? And I was like, ooh, uh-oh. <laughs> Because we were brand new, female-led team. We had never, you know, the 1310 Bandits. And then we became the team to beat. Wow. And so that was a really fun, you know, local community. We've talked about 48-hour film projects here. We had uh, Dana Delacamera on. She's the Miami area producer for this year's. I've done a couple of 48-hour film projects. The fact that you won on your first one blows my mind. The fact that it was your first time making a film blows my mind because we were not first timers, but you know, new. Like I put a message out, hey, anybody want to try this? And a bunch of people joined on and just it was a struggle just to get something made. But you know, we did it. It was shown. Just for new listeners, the way the 48-hour film project, or actually, why, why don't you explain it? They've heard me explain it. Yeah. I mean, it's so fun because there's a, it's a national program. Well, really, I think it's worldwide because we played with quite a few teams everywhere. So essentially, in my case, someone tagged me. I looked it up. And everyone meets on a Friday at 6 p.m. You pull a genre out of a hat such that there's no way you could prepare for anything, really. And then inside of that, so your genre is unique to your team, whether it's horror, comedy, etc. And then you get these challenges. So it's a line of dialogue, a prop, a character name, and potentially something else. I think it's those three. Those three? Those are three that I remember. And so the clever ways that you can incorporate incorporate those three things kind of sets you apart in your storytelling and it helps them know that you made it in that 48 hour increment and then if all goes well team building and preparation is a huge thing i love and then you drop it off and hope for the best did you have anything pre the, the biggest challenge we found was a location to shoot our first location like really you know that we thought we could shoot it at didn't work and then the second one didn't work and we ended up using someone's apartment on the second one we had someone's house but we had to be out by a certain time or all that and you know the advice i give you know when people ask me about it is if you can secure a flex like a location that you can work with that's the key because you can go and and start and if you're a writer like me you have a multiple page document of ideas log lines, ideas. So, you know, if you have a horror idea or you have a thriller or a comedy, we were always petrified that we get musical. Like if we got musical, we're just like, oh, well, guess we're done. That I think is the most challenging one to do. Do you remember what your genre was? Absolutely. Every one of them, especially because the second year we played, I was like, well, maybe the first year was a fluke. And then the same exact thing happened. And I was like, okay, maybe we have something here. We're storytellers. This is cool. We pulled horror our first, um, but on top of the already embedded challenges. We're also a group that wants to make true stories that have a social message. So we start looking at the truth, docu articles and this and that. And so Souvenir was born from this article from a newspaper that was about snuff porn. And it's a very heavy topic which we love and live in. And then the second one was action adventure. And the way we approached that was the main character's mental wellness was the action adventure. So one part of her brain was telling her one thing and another side, et cetera. So she was in a battle with herself. And it was just a fascinating thing to explore. Uh, location, have 
one or two actors, I would recommend having more than that. One location, one actor. And it's funny. It's not, this isn't funny. You mentioned snuff porn and I remember the movie 8mm, Nicolas Cage. And at the time, there were critics and people, they were almost like afraid to give it a good rating or say it was a good movie because they were afraid that could be misconstrued as an endorsement of snuff or like that. But it's, I mean, it's a horror thriller when, when you think about it. And I think over time, you know, it's gotten its, its due. Yeah, it's just a really good movie, really good insight into that scary, horrible, disgusting world. I know um, that came to us. They said, don't you feel like you're just advertising for someone who would love this? Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, but the audience we're going after hasn't seen this and they're not aware of these concepts. And at the end, the Kinsey Institute had some stats and it was mind blowing what those stats are. So I think using film as an educational tool is one of the brilliant reasons we have that format. Did you have any mentors or anyone who's influenced you? Someone that took you under their wing or your movie watcher, any directors really stand out? Cinematographers? I really haven't. I've been pretty self-driven and I really am a project horse. I just, when I'm done with one project, I'm really on to the next one. I research as much as I can. Asked for mentorship, but I haven't found the perfect person. Yeah. So I'm really self-directed. I just go with my flow. Would you be interested? I mean, you're obviously interested. Do you like mentoring young I filmmakers? Have mentored. So I'm at an age now where I have a career behind me and I've done a docu uh, class at FIU uh, telling stories for nonprofits. That's a big part of my passion. And oh, I love Youth, youth brains are brilliant. It is, and that, that's why, like I, I get so much joy in teaching now, teaching high school film, middle school photography, and influencing them, and you know, hoping to ignite their passion, which is already there. You know, it's just being able to harness it, mm -hmm. giving them the tools, and what you can do with a cell phone now is magical. Absolutely, we're gonna take a quick break. And we'll be right back continuing this conversation. Cinevideo Tech and Paradoxical Films are pleased to bring you Tell Your Story Master Training Workshops. You will learn how to work with actual 16mm and 35mm film and film cameras, as well as how to load and change magazines. In addition, the workshop will teach you what it takes to work on set as a first or second assistant camera, the fundamentals of lighting, and the pathway to becoming a director of photography. Visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates, pricing, and how to sign up. Hurry as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly. And we are back with Tabitha Mudra. You're a photographer. I think an argument can be made that when we talk about photography throughout its history, women photographers have had just as much of an impact, maybe even more of an impact uh, than men. Why do you think it took so long for women to move into and then be accepted as cinematographers? Because Brianne Murphy wasn't exactly welcomed at first. When she first tried to join the union in the early 70s, the union president told her over my dead body. She went back to the union after he died and they let her in. Um, she started going by her initials because she would get better responses. But like, what took so long? And has there been progress since? Mm -hmm. Wow. What a loaded question that is. This is the war on gender, the gender gap, the kind of unanswerable question until we've put in enough advocating on both sides. Um, the big, the biggest 
influence I've seen is when male counterparts advocate for their female counterparts. So it's really making it aware. But there's this thing called, I think it's called the sticky floor phenomena, which is men will take a job that they're not qualified for. Mm -hmm. Women will think they need 100% of every line qualification. So it's possible that it's mindset. It's been this way for so long that we are we're in it. It's across the board. It's not just in this industry, obviously. So this is something we have to do as humankind, work together. And we need more filminists, you know? You um, should trademark that. I think it's out there somewhere. <laughs> I've never heard that term. Me neither, actually. Maybe <laughs> maybe we have the t-shirt awesome. and hat idea. Yeah, yeah. So if it's not trademarked, you heard it here first. And that would be really stating, you know, why why is it that sometimes if I arrive to a set, I'm taken to the wrong department? For example, hair and makeup or some they just auto assume that you're not the DP. It's just I read something once script supervisors that using the term scripty was offensive because usually the only like job on like right on the, on the you know frontline crew that a female could get was script supervisor. Like that was the closest. And, you know, scripty became a derogative term. Have you like heard that story? It sounded off to me. It sounded like there's ones that you go, wow, that makes sense. But I heard that one. I was like, I'm I not going to believe that one. I worked with a female scripty and we called her scripty. So hopefully we weren't. I've called myself scripty. In the LGBTQ world as well, there's a lot of derogatory terms that are being reclaimed. Right. For example, queer, dyke, etc. Scripty may be that. It's like maybe at one point it was, and now it's something they hold yeah. strong. Right. So we'd have to look yeah. into that. Script girl, obviously, you know, would, would be bad. But I do now see um, best girl in credits now, best girl grip, best girl dolly, that which is, it's nice to see. Only in New York have I been on set with an all-female um, grip and gaff team. Electric was it was awesome. Um, I haven't seen it down here. And honestly, I only know one sound engineer that's female. The world is a little small, so I feel like I would know them. I'd love to work with more females down here. So thanks for having me on. And Absolutely. Um, we both know one emerging cinematographer, Jay Citanio, mm -hmm. you know, the other side of my brain, we work together. Another emerging cinematographer, Nicole Santiago, who's, you know, an MDC graduate. She's come here to the film classes. She's, you know, really well. So it's, I've seen recently a lot of women gravitating towards camera, but we were talking during the break. You actually do have some data and stats on, you know, women in the industry. There has been some movement, you know, obviously not enough, but, you know, hopefully the momentum is still will pick up. Yeah. And I hope all of these emerging cinematographers that we will be able to include ourselves in that data at some point. Um, independent, independently as filmmakers, I don't know who's cross-checking that data. The, these are stats from Hollywood and really looking at, you know, the top 250 grossing films. So I know that the cinematography Photographers rose 3% over the last 25 years. So it went from 4% in 1998 to 7% in 2022. So that's just a year ago. Maybe we're at 8% now. Um, but why are we not at 25, 50? Right. 
The goal is to be at 50 or more. It's been lopsided for a while, but it's this it's across the board with writers, directors and and the like. And we'll never know. Did COVID stop momentum? Did COVID help because, you know, more opportunity to do it yourself and just, you know, without someone telling you no. So, you know, they made independent films. They made their own films behind the camera. Who knows? I'm a huge advocate of take the risk on yourself. You know, in filmmaking, it's a strange thing because it's like, oh, get the swimming pool or do the film, get the car or do the film. For some reason, I do the film. So, you know, I have my vintage car, (laughs) no swimming pool. Wait, wait, hold on. (laughs) Oh, no, it's not vintage yet, but it's old. Okay. Um, But if I had to, you know, if it would be a 67 GT, like a Shelby 550, maybe. That's my car. No, it isn't. That's my car. I was just, I literally... On the previous episode, we talked about the end of Gone with 60 Seconds when they crush the Shelby Jitley's like horror for me. I mean, until I found out they were replicas, but my dream car is the 67 Shelby GT500. Same. It's just, it's beautiful. With it's a, a roll bar. Art. With a roll bar. It's it's a work of art. But for now, I'll drive my Toyota because it fits all my equipment. I drive my Subaru and just, you can beat the crap out of it. That's the, throw, throw if gear. I were yep. to get a new car, it's probably Subaru or Toyota. Yep. Yep. You said something really interesting because something I've thought about. There was a time where I played a lot of golf. I spent a lot of money on golf. It was my hobby, my pastime. Are there people out there who, like, making films is their hobby, their pastime, their passion. They're not looking to, you know, get it into film festivals. They're not looking to make deals. They just, their money that they would put into golf or cycling or, you know, anything outside. Probably up there with uh, plane Plane. Piloting. Okay. <laughs> when, when we're talking the financial resources right. you need, it's a it's a little more expensive if you're doing it at a quality that yeah that's going to hold in the industry. No, I wonder if, if there's people who just make films for fun as a hobby, just to like they'll put it on YouTube, they'll put it on Vimeo, they'll send it to their play. I mean, there's obviously the short form content on social media, but filmmake filmmaker hobbyist. I would say, I mean, that's how I started with 48. I was like, oh, maybe we're good at this. Maybe it was a fluke. Then we played a couple more times. We realized we've got something. Then we went on to 48 Day doing features, did two of those. Then more, because that momentum was built, PBS reached out, United Nations reached out. Uh, It started spreading because we were working on our perspective. And I say our because although I'm directing it or team leading it, it takes a village, we know this, um, to pull off a work of art um, and everyone's unique magic. Was it a natural transition for you going from still photography to motion picture? You talked a little bit about that, but there's some obvious differences. There are some obvious similarities. What are what are the little things that may know? Maybe like the way you structure your composition, different things that you do. Any tricks that you as a photographer are able to bring to you as a cinematographer? Mm-hmm. First, I see things still. And then I think, how am I going to... What's the lighting going to look like? The whole vision. What is the motivation around the movement? I don't want to move for movement's sake. I want to have something powering it so that the audience is really interested in said movement. I get a little annoyed when we're following someone down a hallway or down the street and it's like, okay, there's just no motivation for that. So seeing it still, making it move, and the lighting. I would say most of my community count on me for the lighting. Having a lighting background, it was different 
but it was similar. And you gave me a perfect segue for my next question. You know, although the terms director of photography, cinematographer are pretty interchangeable, some will say cinematographer is only if you're making a movie, if you're on a commercial or something, it's director of photography, but, but it encompasses a lot more than just the camera. You mentioned lighting. Like, How would you define or describe what, what a DP is, what they do, and really what they're responsible for? They're responsible for the visual style of the film. So that includes establishing what camera you'll use, the lenses, um, the lighting for every scene. Um, you would explore every location and make sure that you can even pull it off because a uh, little thing that we learn in independent film is there's someone with a dream and they show you this, you know, screenshot of a $20 million movie and they're like, can you make it look like this? And you're like, well, we can kind of make it look like that on the independent budget you have. And then you just elevate the visuals. They, they want a, a champagne film on a beer budget. Oh, absolutely. But you can do that. Right. You know, my first film was $30. So, and it looked, yeah, it looked like we put some money into it. So speaking of cameras, you know, while not an endorsement from a company, although we are always looking for sponsors out there, what are uh, what are your camera lenses of choice? Camera lenses of choice? I mean, I like old glass. I'll play with any glass, but 24 is my go-to. I'm a 24 millimeter shooter 90% of the time. I love the look of it. I can do a two shot. I can do a one shot. I can, it's just so pretty. And I like, you know, well, I've used some variable lenses that were pretty good. DZO makes a nice variable lens that's affordable. And then I rent usually the bigger sets. Mm -hmm. And then cameras for sponsorship, please. <laughs> <laughs> so I mostly um, work with RED. The RED camera is beautiful. It gets the job done. It's affordable. It is, it's got a great look in comparison to some of the top tier, you know, uh, that are maybe not as approachable for independent filmmakers. RED can pull it off. I think you mentioned Canon. Oh, also Canon? Canon? Canon, yes. I'm a Canon person and, you know, Canon lenses can go on a red. And we were uh, shooting an independent film and we were on like 25th floor of an apartment building and wanted to look down into a parking lot across the street to make it look like a like a security camera looking down. So used my 75 to 300 Canon lens on the red. You know, Canon's both mount and the lenses are, I think, the most flexible to use the most. Um, then Nikon, Sony likes having its own. It's all mount. Yeah, and you can get a meta, meta bones for just about yeah. anything. But the L series lens by Canon is a great piece of glass. Yeah. Um, and then as you step up, yeah. uh, there's really great glass out there. But you can get it on a budget. Yeah, I definitely. If you don't have one, I definitely recommend getting like a macro fisheye lens. It's so much fun to play with uh, that's out there. And, and if you get it, you get that. You naturally get that vintagey little grainy look sometimes. I didn't bring my camera, but I should, I should have brought it to show you some of the ones that I love I grit and grain and honesty and visceral and yeah. Well, and, and it's... It's making the pictures interesting. Um, like I was explaining to my students, you know, you can take a picture of your pet, but make it interesting. I showed them where, you know, I took a picture of my cat, but I did while he was in his cat bed, but I did it, you know, you get a little bit of the bed in there. You get just his eye and you got an interesting dirt, you know, you got a dirty picture with him as opposed to just getting, you know, my cat looking there dumb. Like he always does. So yeah, just just a little a little creativity, you know, playing with angles. You you'd be amazed how much it changes a picture. Oh, absolutely. And a film and lighting. Yeah. You know, I have a four part workshop for uh, photography uh, as well as 
filming. And it's what the main thing, the function is you have to understand your camera. A lot of people go to a school or a workshop and they're like, kind of download this information. It's like you really need that manual and you need to play. Especially like the Reds, like the true cinema cameras. I say they're, they're actually a supercomputer that takes video and gave rise to one of two new positions, DITs, another new position, you know, intimacy coordinators, different, but you know, we'll talk about that in the next, next segment that will come up. Going back to like your processes, you say you start with stills. Are you a storyboarder? Do you like using pictures to storyboard? Yeah, I use a lot of Google and throw it together. It doesn't have to be perfect because you already see it, but you want to be able to articulate it to your team. And so everyone's on the same page. Um, Absolutely. Storyboards are, you you can't go wrong. And I I tell students that uh, stick figures are fine. Stick figures are fine. It's more that you're trying, you want, you want that roadmap of the shots. Yeah. And your angles. angles. I love a a bug's eye view and then a bird's eye view. And, and again, it needs to be motivated. Right. It has to make sense. You don't just choose it for, you know, for funsies. It really gives that superior, yeah. inferior feeling that your characters need. Yeah. And you talked earlier, like, you know, you know, someone, you know, following someone down the street or doing whatever. Um, you can tell when it's done just because and, and when there's intent. I, I have a screenplay I'm working on, and as I'm thinking through it, there's a shot of the main character like walking down a hallway, and I want to do it, you know, from behind, slightly raised to symbolize like something is coming up behind you, you know, something, you know, metaphorically is co- coming up behind you. So um, intent is is so important, and that, I think, is the difference you learn someone who's either study themselves, taught themselves to be a filmmaker as opposed to someone who just runs around with a camera? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a site, No Film School, I think. Most people yep. know about it. Yep. And I'll reference it uh, as often as need be. But initially, you know, I went to school for photography and lighting and business. So I was like, to be a filmmaker, what do I need to do? I asked quite a few people and they said, you need to make films. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, let's do that. Um, and that was more my journey. Um, yeah, no film school is good. Studio Binder has a lot of in- information, especially especially templates, especially like, you know, the, um, you know, although people hate paperwork until you don't have it. So you're trying to remember, what was my settings two days ago? Uh, it's on there. So my big question, as an AD that's done it, I have to ask. Why do camera setups always take so long? Not on my set. We have a camera flying in every two seconds. I've never, okay, I can't say never. One time, the nucleus, which is the fall of focus, it disconnected while we were on set. That was the one and only time the crew waited on us and it maybe took 60 seconds. I love being ready. I like going out there, kind of setting up the shots. I love the readiness mm-hmm. feeling and knowing that if, if everyone gets ready soon enough, yeah. we might get an extra shot in. Right. So I anticipate yeah, all I, of that. You know, a film I did on, the, uh, the director you know, was adamant that for every scene, shoot a master scene, medium close-up, you know, either over the shoulder or close-up of, you know, if it, was, if it was one person. So prime lenses... 
having to change the lens every time. And, you know, I'm keeping track and it's like, it's three minutes for lens change, another six minutes if you have to calibrate on there. And that's if the calibration goes smooth, not in it. And I'm, I'm adding up these numbers at the end of the day and showing them like, you know, look, you know, we lost almost two hours just on lens changes mm-hmm. and calibration, you know, but when the director is also the producer and, you know, it's 100% their film, you know, they don't, they don't, they're not worried as much about time or schedule because, you know, because oh, they're, money. it is, but, it, but when it's their own money, they're like, or no money. The, I prepare so much. I love being prepared. Hence my, yeah. <laughs> um, is if you know these shots are coming in this order and I know the lens that I'm going to have, I'm going to rearrange it for the least amount of lens changes yeah. and then incorporate, okay, they may need to fix, um, art department may need yeah. to step in or, or yeah. whatever. So I know they're busy while I'm doing it. So it, no one's waiting yeah. on camera. Right. And, and as an AD... You know, when when you're putting together a shooting when you're putting together a shooting schedule, the good one, you you know, factor in the lenses and the shots that are being used, and do all you know if you if it works, you know, if you're doing multiple master shots in the same location, do those first, you know, with your long lens, and then and then you know work work through. You know, it's a uh, it's a it's a a dynamic dynamic world. It's the, a dance. The, it's a dance. Great. We're, uh, we're going to take another break. Uh, but first, just want to thank our supporters who make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who has been providing filmmaking equipment, training, and services to the film industry both inside and outside the United States since 1968. M2 Films, who provides directing, writing, and assistant director services. ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment, marketing, advertising, and commercial projects. And we are back. Let's move to another topic. Uh, usually I preface a rapid change to a topic with a uh, squirrel. Um, there are two areas that you're extremely passionate about. Talked about um, LGBTQ and gender identity, uh, as well as creating opportunities for women in the film industry. Uh, the film industry's just horrendous treatment of women through history. You mentioned The Wizard of Oz earlier you know this like judy garland was basically put on a diet of coffee and cigarettes when they were filming there um more recently uh he whose name i won't even mention uh you know the me too movement that but and i i would say hollywood has a complex history of its relationship with the lgbtq plus community you know you kind of had the the open secrets you know, back in the day, as long as it was a secret, and then, you know, you have, like, when Rock Hudson, you know, came out, you know, that he had AIDS and a gay, and, like, everybody just turned their back on him, you know, um, and that. So, still major challenges for both. Um, seems that there's one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back, which is better because I think in the past, there weren't any steps forward, and it was two steps back. But where do we even start the conversation about these things? Well, we're talking about women, LGBTQ, and minorities, which have seemed to be on the chopping block for all of time. But there's something so interesting about 
1982, Alice and Bechdel and a friend of hers, I believe, they had a criteria for women on screen. Very simple. And it was astounding how few movies passed the Bechdel test. At least two women are featured, preferably named with a backstory. They must talk to each other such that they do discuss something other than a man. Mm -hmm. That was it. Two women named talk about something other than a man. They were astounded. Nothing was passing the Bechdel test. Now there's a nice little list, mm -hmm. but there's also a list that doesn't qualify. And it's, I mean, it's similar to watching some of the 80s iconic movies now, and we've gotten some more awareness around certain things. So it's looking a little bizarre. Disney movies, the same. Mm -hmm. And then in LGBTQ, we have the film test, the Vito Russo test. That's amazing. Um, so this film contains a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and or queer. The character must not solely or predominantly be defined by their sexual sexuality, uh -huh. orientation, or gender identity. Um, and they have to have the same character traits as their hetero partners on film. Then they have to be tied to the plot in a way that if you remove them, it would disturb the whole movie. Instead of it being tokenized, like, oh, we're setting up a punchline, and then this very flamboyant character walks in. So they were like, no, we need them to have story arcs. We need them to be involved. So you bring up a great point. Um, the last James Bond movie, No Time to Die. Um, Bond and Money Penny go to Q's house for something. Q, um, you know, their tech weapons guy, and uh, he has you know dinner place set out, dinner for two, and he just you know you know he mentions you know I have someone coming over. He's going to be here in a little bit. So you know, obviously the character you know is is gay. They go about their business and leave. And at the time. I read a lot of people saying, oh, they did it injustice. You know, they should have, you know, done more to it. And and my looking at it, not an expert, you know, not that, is to me, you want it to be something that it's like no big deal. Like it would have been worse where Bond would have been like, oh, you have a man coming over? Like it was just, you know, you know, it's natural. Like it's, it's part of the everyday. So I'm glad you said that because- that goes along with the way I thought about it and, you know, and that, and uh, does it lead, we, does, do you think it can lead to tokenism though? Like somebody writes a script and they're like, oh shoot, you know, I gotta, you know, I have to have, you know, a, a queer character or I have to, you know, have now, now the Academy, you know, came out with for, you know, to qualify for best picture has to meet certain diversity and inclusion requirements like i i see those as band-aids where no one goes back looks at you know the bigger problem you know how come there's not more minority directors how come there's not more to, well where do we start creating more opportunities for them where do we get them more in into the film? i i related a lot to um in pro football for teams looking for new head coaches there's called the rooney rule where well-intentioned, but 
it requires each team to interview at least one minority candidate for head coaching. But most of the time, teams know what coach they want, you know, when the hot coach becomes available. So, you know, they bring in and and one of um, the former Miami Dolphins coach, he, he sued the league, you know, basically because, you know, he believes he was brought in just to check that box for, for that and no intention. So it's it's a complex problem. It's not easily solvable, but I'm one of those people like, okay, you want more minority coaches. What are you doing to to get more minority coaches into the system? Mm-hmm. You know, how are you providing more opportunities for them at the beginning of the process? You know, you know, those coming right out of college, you know, if you're not a player, but you know, get into, get into the system. Yeah. This is going to sound very, however it sounds I have no problem checking that female DP box for anyone. I want you to call me. I want you to need a female cinematographer. I absolutely because the opportunities again are going to the male counterparts very quickly. Um, you know, and I don't want to talk just about pain points, but again, there's there's only three tests that I know of. Hopefully, there will be one soon on. Um, where were the spectrum of, uh, you know, they and them and how that's going to be portrayed on film. But um, DuVernay, the DuVernay test is essentially um, uh, black and brown representation of any minority. And it's that same thing where you hear Bechdel and Vito Russo. They must have their own plot lines, motivations, desires. It's a fully realized person. Um, and they're not informed by the other characters. They are their own. Um, You would think that's so basic, but again, when we talk about tokenism, we've seen these things in in minority, you know, and women being a part of that over and over and over. Um, Going way back, I think one of our films won um, quite a few accolades because some of the competing films had unnamed female characters licking lollipops and being mm, nothing air taking up space they weren't named they didn't have powerful stories and women have powerful stories to tell let's tell them so so these these tests the Bechdel the the Vito Vito Russo Russo test and the DuVernay test when they're applied to you know whether a a screenplay or or movie um what's the what happens afterwards? Like if it doesn't pass the test, can it still get made? Like, like are these tests that are being put in place by studios? Like, is is there any um, really like, like no penalty, you know, for it? It's just a, a good practice. It's a great practice. And as we're moving forward, um, you know, our, our self-awareness has grown so much over the years and why not continue to be aware of all of these, you know, these considerations. And, you know, we talked lightly about actors and on-screen, um, you know, mixed ability. And, you know, can can I don't want to not be considered because it's a male story, because I'm a female director or a cinematographer. I can still tell a male story, but I would inform it by those who are at the table. Right. You know, I'm not just going to pretend I know everything about the male experience, um, as they shouldn't do for LGBTQ, minority, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, the women's experience, it's like we have other things to talk about. 
And I'm so glad you bring that up because I often bring up, my listeners may be sick of hearing it, my producers may be sick of hearing it, um, an interview with Denzel Washington, you know, not that long ago, I think it was around the time Moon um, Fences came out and he made the point, they were talking about, you know, you know, black directors making black films. Um, and, and he brought up the point that, you know, Steven Spielberg made Schindler's List and Martin Scorsese made Goodfellas. Spielberg could have made Goodfellas. Scorsese could have made Schindler's List. They would have been good. But it's not a color thing. It's a culture thing that they that they bring to it. Um, you know, then he talked about, you know, you know, like I don't know, like, you know, a person who's not black wouldn't know the smell of a hot hair iron on a Sunday morning, you know, before after church. And you know, South Florida, at least what I've seen, has become a pretty big hub of the LGBTQ film industry. You know, there's a dedicated festivals for it. I see it coming out. When we talk about culture and a point you bring up, I'm I'm a straight white guy from New York. If I went to make, if I wanted to make, if somebody gave me an LGBTQ script and wanted me to to direct it or, or produce it, um, would I lose... How do I not lose credibility or how do I gain credibility, you know, as a filmmaker? Um, because I do see most of the LGBTQ plus films come from LGBTQ plus directors on that. It's, you know, in today's era, you know, similar to who should play who, you know, in, in films, it's, are we getting to a point where, you know, characters in movies, you know, become more caricature than characters is is what I'm afraid of. It's like, like, I mean, you know, there's some, there's some actors, you know, that have played, you know, roles, whether, you know, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, you know, Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club, um, you know, count, countless others, you know, where they've played, you know, gay or transgender that and you know people now look back and say oh they shouldn't play those roles but to me that's what an actor does you know if an actor can embody and bring that character to life you know as someone who's different than who they are they've done their job absolutely that's a it's again it's a slippery slope because actors have the magical tools to transform the screen for the viewer and become that character that is the sole purpose of the actor. Now that we have this consciousness and inclusion, we just want to make sure that people are at the table. So where is the table? It's in the writer's room. It's in the producer's room. It's, it's at every step. Um, you know, anywhere a major decision is being made, that's where you want folks to have the proper whomever it is, if it's a mixed ability scenario, um, a, a, a mental con connection or a, it doesn't matter. You want those people. Again, I can't imagine, I don't know what it's like to be a, a New Yorker heterosexual male, <laughs> right? But I assert that you probably walk to your car with some confidence at night, whereas most women maybe look around a little more. You know, we have a different lived experience. So, Let's discuss those topics. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, right right now the writer strike is going on. Things have kind of stopped in Hollywood and TV. 
like we mentioned before with, with COVID, was there momentum kind of going in a positive direction? Is that stopped? Is this now giving, you know, a chance to writers, you, you know, even though they're not supposed to be working to go back and look at things and, you know, apply some of these tests, you know, maybe change, change things because you have a little bit, you have a bit more runway before cameras roll. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I've done it myself. I led a project in the LGBTQ world uh, in the art of drag. There were some characters that were built from thin air. You know, that's what the art of drag is. You are creating a character that would otherwise be offensive today. Now knowing what we know, we can apologize for that. Disney did a great statement at the start of many of their movies. Um, and, and hopefully... Anyone with that kind of responsibility will follow. Mm -hmm. As independent mm -hmm. filmmakers, we can just be more aware, mm -hmm. apply these things, and yeah. why not be consciously motivated every step of the way? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting. So I'm, I'm in the middle of writing, writing a, a screenplay, um, and it's a pretty heavy topic that's on there. And kind of the core characters are a, you know, a young couple that his parents, her parents, and like if I apply these tests to it, I'd, I'd fail probably because like when I think it, like when I think if I made say, you know, I mean, you can't make the main couple, um, you could make them a female same-sex couple because it involves a woman being pregnant and, and stuff happens. But my fear is that if I start to, if I make, you know, a gay couple or if I make you know, one family, a minority, there's different culture, you know, there's different layers to it that if I want to make a short film about this, I start jamming too much in, into it. Like if it can be made a feature, you have time to explore those different things. But like, you know, like I said, I, I know how a Northeastern middle-class white family would you know, react to the situation and, and how, and how they, and how they, so that it's, it's fascinating challenge and just a fascinating way. Cause you know, when, when you pitch, you know, a lot, a lot of times I've been asked, I've been asked that, you know, have you thought of making this character this, or have you thought of introducing that? And, you know, we've, we've been able to do it. Um, and now sometimes we, we've already had it, but it's, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a layer of consciousness that's out there. And I think, like I said, start the conversation. I think just putting out there that there are these things. I, you know, I think our listeners know I'm pretty knowledgeable in the film industry. I, you know, I write and, and that I'm not familiar with these. Mm -hmm. But now that I know them, I want to look at them. I want to apply, you know, things, things that I write. I want to, you know, I want to bring them up in, in the courses I teach. They're not to be barriers. There's still room for... Um, close knit, you know, if you're telling a black history story, stay there. Right. You know, if this is a Latinx story, stay there. You know, if it's a white trash story, stay there. Don't try to check those boxes because it won't make sense. You know, right. tell the most powerful story that you know, right. you know, write your own truths and whatever that looks like, but be aware of, ooh, if I did bring a, a LGBTQ right. character, how am I portraying them? Right. I, I mean, you said you were Jewish, right? right. There's plenty of stereotyping yes. in Hollywood. Big, a bit big, you know, 
hullabaloo brush up right now with Bradley Cooper, you know, playing Leonard Bernstein over his pr- prosthetic, the prosthetic nose. And again, I ha- I've never looked at a picture or video of Leonard Bernstein that close that I can say, oh yeah, you know, that's, that's his nose. You know, that's the character. And that I, like I said, I'm not offended by it because I understand, you know, especially like a method actor, like Bradley Cooper, that's how he's going to get into character. Yeah, method acting. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole, oh, we could talk, talk about that. And, and it's funny, you mentioned I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish, that I, when I've acted, I love playing characters completely different than me. If somebody came up to me and is like, Howie, I got a role for you in a movie, you know, I got a movie, I got a perfect role for you. It's a neurotic Jewish guy from New York, kind of like George Costanza. I play that role every day in life. Yeah, you would have been great on Pitbulls and Piranhas, isn't it? I feel so bad about that. No, you weren't feeling well, I wasn't but feeling well. what a small world. It is. Um, we did have enough extras come out, and it was a wild, wild, we call it a dog wrestling scene because dog fighting sounds a little vulgar, but we'll get to that. Yes, we we will. And and like I told you, even if I was not sick that day and I was there, the AD yo, would have been like calling me because I would have been out playing with the dogs. And they're screen trained. Yep. They're amazing. Right. Did, um, did you have just their trainer or was there an actual formal animal wrangler on the set? A two. Well, technically there were three animal wranglers. Um, Pipples and Piranhas had a long list that I can't wait to share of quite the challenge. Well, we're going to take another quick break and I think we'll jump right into that when we get back. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating. Then you can head over to our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. I'm Howard Brand, and we're talking today with Tabitha Mudra. Before we cut the commercial, you were starting to talk about your latest film Ooh. that you're about to, uh, I think, enter the editing yes, process? Yes, we start editing tomorrow, so we'll go into assistant editing um, this weekend. It is called Pitbulls and Piranhas. It may be under an arcing name, just my last name, Mudra, because it's it's got a stigma around it where I come from. And uh, so I really wanted to take this time, like the journey I've had in my career and personally, to um, reimagine what mudra meant to me. Because in my hometown, it comes with a few problems. Um, So it may be called mudra, and then each segment would be pitbulls and piranhas and so on and so forth. So almost like a series. I don't know how I'm doing it yet. I shot the proof of concept. Mm -hmm. And I also shot it in a way that it can stand alone like a short film. So I may just do each of the scenes. I'm a scenester. Mm -hmm. I can create some of the wildest things. And I have a history to uh, inform that and influence and inspire. So um, Pipples and Piranhas is a coming-of-age trauma drama uh, really tackling this big idea of what is generational trauma. What is the healing path? When um, it, I, I, it's a loose based statement, but what is it? How come some people have it 
And what I mean by that is like the identity to want more in life, whereas some people fall into the same patterns and just repeat the same cycle. Um, so it allows us to get further from to transform this gener generational trauma, which is kind of a trigger word these these days. It's kind of a fatting uh, thing. But uh, we follow a young girl uh, through a series of her, through 10 years of her life, and go on these adventures that are otherwise traumatic to see how she then makes decisions. Very interesting. You, you, you made me think... Um... Not necessarily movie related, but um, I watched, you know, last year, whatever, watched a movie like Winter's Bone, Jennifer Lawrence, and then a great series um, on Hulu called Dope Sick about the opioid crisis. And, you know, there's another one that just came out with Matthew Broderick. And I just, I think about like the people in the Ozarks, the people in this, like, what chance do they have? Mm -hmm. I mean, like everything seems you know, stacked against them. And, you know, she, you know, I think in, in Winter's Bone, she sees her only chance out is to, you know, go into the army. Um, that's on that. You, you know, you seem to like, you have a lot of insight into that. Like you understand that. So not, again, we're not here to solve the social problems of what's going on with the Ozarks, but the way these, the way those movies represent that area is it really that bad? The underbelly of America and, and really any country, I've been to third world and developing, so I've had some really sincere experiences. The underbelly of America, pending where it's at, I came from middle America. Yes, there are trap houses. And for those who don't know, trap houses are a place where you buy and use your drugs before you go out into the world. Um there are um, gangs and violence and all of these same street things as there would be in any city anywhere. So absolutely, these things are true. But I think it would be best explained if, if you watch a movie about a battle, a war battle, there is nothing even remotely real. You can't get that visceral sense. There's nothing that compares to the reality of, of the companionship and the, the trauma that is experienced on a battlefield. Although I will give two caveats to that. Um, the beginning of Saving Private Ryan um, is about as close, and you read stories about World War II vets who were there that were triggered and all that. And uh, the movie Black Hawk Down, when it came out, I, you know, I was in the Marine Corps during that time, and you know, a friend of mine in there, he was he had been in Somalia, uh, you know, force recon guy, and he said Black Hawk Down was the first, you know, war military movie he's ever seen where he told his family, Don't watch this until I get out of the Marines. Mm -hmm. So those those two, you know, you know, with some dramatic license, but those, you know, Saving Private Ryan, of course. I mean, the way he shot that. You know, you, you know, if you're in surround sound, you duck, mm -hmm. like you feel, you feel it's coming out and, you know, Black Hawk Down is, you could, you could have all the technology supporting you in the world. It a lot of times just comes down with, with guys with guns and, and that. So again, we talked about intent mm -hmm. 
Well, I want to share that I intend that Pipples and Piranhas will be that memorable movie that got you closer to a gritty, raw, visceral understanding of that underbelly and that society. And it's not glamorized, Mm -hmm. um, which I think it's much more palatable when Hollywood and the like do these white trash or drug stories. And you're like, okay, it's it's palatable. I can watch this. I don't know. I don't want it to be that. I want it to be as dis- discomforting and and real as possible. It won't be a movie for everyone. Um, it'll be a movie for the right people. And, and the, the possibility of someone else getting a full understanding, like going, wow, I know that life. I've never seen it on screen. Beauty, you know, beauty is screen but you know, you know, there's actresses that are beautiful, they're you know, men are you know, handsome, but I find it sometimes hard to buy when they take like a beautiful actress and like you know try to you know a poor attempt at like you know uglying her up. Um, and on a, I watched a uh, I watched a behind a making of a monster recently, and you know. You know, Charlize Theron, you know, gorgeous, but the work they did, you know, to make her look like Eileen Wernos, you know, the makeup, the weight she gained, like, like she was so emotionally and like physically exhausted, like, you know, between takes, she would just like lie down in the grass where they were shooting. So it's like, you know, either go all the way for these portrayals or like don't. Is kind of my take. Yeah, I'm all in. It's um, there were so many challenges with PMP at Pitbulls and Piranhas that it's first of all it's a period piece. It starts in 1987 is the date is the year, and then it has animals. It has fish, um, which piranhas are illegal in the state of Florida amongst many uh, bordering states. So. I had to have Paku flown in um, because they're like a cousin and kind of look like piranha. So I think that the audience will be forgiving. Um, But it was actually illegal for me to have actual piranha. Um, So fish, a firearm. Did I mention kids? Picture cars. uh, A unique budget because you have to buy. It's a period piece. So you have to get things that made sense for the 80s. And because it's a lower class family, you have to get things that make sense 60s, 70s, because they would have had hand-me-downs, et cetera, to make it feel more real. Did you have an armor on set for the the weapon, even even if it was a prop? We had, so we had a really cool, it was a theater, um, so the barrel was full. So they come solid. It can't even. um, We had our safety meetings and a handler, Mm -hmm. so to speak. Um, But the biggest precautions we took was with the child and with the animals. Yeah. I, uh, about a month ago, I went through an IATSE training on, you know, weapon safety on set. So, you know, you know, obviously we talked about rust, but like, you know, a little thing. And a lot of it's just common sense. You know, I, uh, you know, talking about dark subjects, I produced a film that's about the dark web, you know, recently. And, you know, like literally it's, it's a game of Russian roulette. So, 
you know, weapon. And literally like before every take would, it was a revolver, you know, would open it, you know, show and that. And the challenge with a revolver that's empty is when you shoot it, if you're from the front, you can tell that it's empty mm-hmm. <laughs> on that. So again, Jay, Jay was a DP on that, but she was, a, she was able to make it work. Yeah. Cheat the shot somehow, turn it just slightly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was a wild challenge, and and just to furthermore, this is my passion project, right, my baby, and so Pipples and Piranhas was um, all passion. Uh, I had a very specific point. Do you love how your brain works? And it's like, oh, point be gone. Ah, again, <laughs> squirrel. That that's squirrel. that's that, that's the code that I'm rapidly changing topics. Um, but yeah, it was locally grown, and it. It was it was amazing building that team and all the challenges. I remember what I was going to say. So when we were talking earlier about hobby and, and, you know, it's my hobby. It's also my career. It's my passion. I when I'm not filmmaking for someone else and that's usually to put food in my mouth and then to feed my other projects. That's why I work. Um, I funnel it right back into my personal projects. And this was one that I was so excited about, but taking a risk on yourself Mm -hmm. is such an, I did not think again, period piece, um, firearms, children, animals. I wasn't getting those kind of opportunities down here. So I was like, create your own, take that risk and, and Nike it, just Mm -hmm. do it. So, and I'm so glad I did. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, Anything lined up next, or are you just trying to get through this one? So I do. Um, I was sent a script. It's a um, about two gay men who are literally stuck in a room in a hostage situation, and it's got a nice twist at the end, and it already has distribution, so we're just waiting on some more information and paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I have a few lines out. And um, there was a project previous of Pitbulls and Piranhas called Jammers, which is a roller derby crime drama about four, now I'm, is it four or five young girls um, essentially slinging drugs on the beach and they get into some, well, they get an opportunity to deliver some cocaine uh, for a lot more money. And so they do, but it's lined with fentanyl. And so the drama goes. Yeah. Yeah. And again, Squirrel, you just made me think of something. Um, The movie Whip It. Mm -hmm. You know, it's awesome. You know, great movie and that. And, um, you know, Ellen Page. Mm -hmm. Or actually, this is my question. You know, at the time, you know, Elliot Page, you know, before he transitioned, you know, was Ellen Page in that movie? Like, how do you? And and I asked this question. I think I think we're talking about the the Wachowskis on another one. Like, how do you refer when you're talking about the past before someone transitions? Like, like should they go back and to, like it's it's such out of it's respect. So weird, yeah, they call it a dead name. Okay. So Ellen Page should not be considered any longer. Okay. It's Elliot Page. Okay. That is their identity. That's it's known. So Elliot Page. Okay. Yep. Um, 
that's just sort of the, the golden rule. Right. Okay. But it's it's fine to mess up. Right. Um, you know, I've messed up with they, them plenty of times, so much so that oftentimes I just refer to everyone as they, them. Right. Yeah, I've, I, I, I work with non-binary and I, I, I usually apologize in advance and say like, you know, I, you know, just again, I, I'm well aware of my blind spots that a lot, a lot of it's, you know, again, culture. I love it. I love that we are making space for everyone in the comforts of how they identify. So learning a a new thing or I'm like, I'm, I'm stoked for it. Um, There couldn't, there, there's more space. There's space for everyone. All we have to do is adjust minorly. You touched on this earlier. Growing up, did you ever think you'd be where you are now? Well, we shall see in Pitbulls and Piranhas, won't we? Um, Don't spoil it. So, no, absolutely not. But I've been on a journey Mm -hmm. and to what they call get out, to get out of circumstances that are maybe not the best for you and go see what you can do on your own. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not without, you know, there's some... I guess it's not really a regret as much as it is a reflection on I've missed things. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, if if my eight-year-old self was looking at my life now, I think she would be like, oh, wow. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. And you're gay. Because I didn't come out until I was 15. Okay. And, uh, you know, the, the car that you drove to Florida and that, that kind of, I think, I think signified or symbolized the point of no return. It was absolutely. That's actually how um, Pibbles and Piranhas ends in this car scene and seeing, hopefully I'll get some sponsorship. We'll see. A lot of people don't do trauma dramas, um, but road movies, a lot of times, you you know, if you can get mobile to send you some money or Exxon or who knows. Um, but uh, speaking of music, uh, no, we weren't. It's so much fun to play with the music. I know exactly the song. It's by a local artist here. Um, it's called Old Roads, and I'm I'm so stoked to get through this first part of editing and get to the score. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yep, I, yeah, I, I think I'm up to about 200 songs on my Spotify movie score playlist mm-hmm. that I just put on. It, it's great. Um, what do you want artists, filmmakers, creatives? What do you want them to know about Miami and South Florida? Like, like what, why should they come here? Why come here? Well, I don't know, really. I love it here. I love the sunshine. It's wonderful for my mental health. Um, there are opportunities. There's not opportunities like I lived in LA for a couple of years. I, I visited um, New York plenty for projects and Atlanta. So it really depends on what, how you feel comfortable in your lifestyle, but we have a wonderful lifestyle down here. Um, and yeah, it's, it really is the sunshine right. state. Yeah. And, and I, uh, I still believe cause you know, like you and people, I know that it, despite what you may see or read about the state, I, I think it's very welcoming to the LGBTQ plus community we have one of the strongest and longest running wilton manors is a town it's the gayborhood um with their own police station etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean there it's an amazing mm-hmm. 
and, place. And there's a LGBTQ plus film festival. Outshine. Outshine. Mm-hmm. Yep. That goes on. Yep. We're yeah, yeah we're representing mm-hmm. red or blue, huh? Um, but they're they're all here. <laughs> yeah. Um, for sure. Oh, I wanted to touch lightly on if we have the time that Pipples and Piranhas dealt with some very heavy material. And I know like at one point one of our lead actors was very emotional and and expressing herself in such a way. And so I started looking into psychologists on and off movie sets. What is the protocol like an intimacy coordinator? Who's advocating for someone who gets triggered by something? Um, We've seen the effects of mental health in film. So I think the UK or British, I forget who's done it, but they have like this facilitator that's on set. And then they also have like a telehealth call with cast and crew, especially during and post COVID because isolation, socializing, et cetera. But with heavier topics, we need to be, it would just be nice if we were talking, discussing it more as a um, a necessity, interesting, yeah, for into sure. these heavier films. Uh-huh. Yep, and and on that topic, what are you know? I know you're very you're very involved in quite a few organizations, uh, you know, causes. You know, who would you like to give a shout out to and tell our listeners about? There are so many good ones. Uh, it's Google is a great resource for all things, um, but there's. Everything from Pride Lines for youth, there's Sun, Sunshine Cathedral, which is a gay church, which is amazing. Um, there's In the Gayborhood, there's, there's so many. There's a resource for everything. Oh, WIFT. Oh, Women in Film and Television. Thank you. Um, WIFT is a great local, I mean, it's national, possibly larger, they get together for workshops, socializing, networking. Um, but, you know, I, we went out to Brandstar recently and got to see their um, AR wall and and see what that's, po- you know, what's possible. So they're doing a wonderful job. They had with Nicole Perry another workshop with her on what is an intimacy coordinator, um, you know, and how she advocates for the film. I like my last question, probably the most important one. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Where can they follow you on social media, you know, if they want to get in touch with you? Ooh la la. So my number is 954. <laughs> the best way to contact me is Instagram, Facebook, at the Tabitha Mudra, because I got hacked. So now I'm the Tabitha Mudra. <laughs> but we'll, we'll take it. Um, but my name is T-A-B-A-T-H-A. M-U-D-R-A. We will post links to your profile oh, on the episode summary when you're, when this episode goes live. This has been great. Uh, it's been amazing having you. Your insight, you've opened my eyes to a lot of things. I definitely think our listeners, you know, have learned new things. Uh, you know, you're giving back to the film community down here, which is a big part of, of what we do here. And uh, you are more than welcome in fact, I'm definitely going to invite you back to be on the podcast anytime you want. Uh, this has been, it's been great having you. Yeah, we, down here we wear a few hats usually, so I'd love to pick another topic and dive into that. 
Absolutely. We'll do that next time. Yay, Howard. Great. Thanks, Tabitha. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, with associate producer Victor Ferreira. The executive producer is Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website, www.paradoxicalfilms.com, for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you could send any comments or suggestions for future episodes. Remember to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and visit our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash store to get your Cinema Pathway gear and follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We hope you will join us for our next episode where we will continue bringing on special guests to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. Lights out.